Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what's your favorite film about a relationship coming apart? So I was thinking about this, because uh, obviously we're talking about a movie that shows two people falling in love, but they don't wind up together. We're talking about people falling out of love, uh, which is a very specific subgenre film that uh, has yielded some interesting films. I, I considered something, you know, I, I, my brain was kind of going Italian for a little bit in two different ways, either uh, Fellini's Giulietta Les Spirits, or um, I could have been cheeky and picked Divorce Italian Style, uh, which is a very fun Marcello Mastriani uh, murder comedy. but. You know, in truth, as much as it's going to bother Tom, uh, who does not care for this film, uh, as he likes to say on the show, I got to be me. Uh, and the answer is um, 1963's Contempt or Le Mépris by uh, Jean-Luc Bidard, which is watching this um, playwright uh, who, who takes up a job with a uh, with a Hollywood producer played by Jack Palance. Um to to make a Fritz Lang film and and is just he's so neglectful of his wife and you just watch this feeling of of yearning because what I love about it Bridget Bardot is uh the lead in it um and then uh, Michel Piccoli and, but Bardot is so good in the film because what I love about Bardot's performance in the movie and what Dara does with it despite it being so over the top intentionally so is that you really feel like she doesn't love him, but she really wishes she still does. That her yearning is not even to be loved anymore so much as it is to still love him. And of course, it ends in a in a, in a tragic way. And you know, it, it's a uh, listen. If you've if you've ever seen it, it's uh, you know you're either gonna love it or hate it. But in terms of just watching a relationship come apart, like it, my answer is contempt. Okay, so for mine. I found a weird angle into this one, uh, and it's because I feel like people don't really think about the uh, dissolution of this of a relationship when they talk about this movie, or I should say, movies. I'm cheating, uh, mainly because I think they tell one complete story. Through these two movies, you watch this relationship, and you see like these two young people that are that they're in love, and that you know there's a future here, but uh, as things in the story keep coming up things start changing for the man and the woman is trying really hard to kind of like not see or not even trying to but she's just not seeing what is happening to this guy but she's so in love with him that she's willing to go with him until it's too late and then by the end of the second one the relationship is completely destroyed you could even say by the beginning of the second movie the relationship is destroyed and it takes until the end for both of them to kind of uh realize that or at least the man to realize it and i think it's one of the many elements that makes these two movies one of the great american movies of all time i'm going with godfather one and two great 
great pick. People never think about Michael and Kay's relationship, really, I feel like, when they talk about this movie. But, I mean, what's the iconic shot at the end of the first movie? Michael yeah. closing the door on Kay. And then, you know, the of all the things that happen in two, you know, he kills his own, he has his own brother killed and all this. But I think the most tragic thing in the movie is her just telling him, I, I aborted your baby. I can't bring another one of you into this world. And just the look on his face of like, we've had at, at this point, like five hours of Godfather, basically. And just maybe the best acting Al Pacino's ever done of just that, sl- just the cool the Godfather cool he's put on. He's trying to act like his dad and he's trying to be cool and like, oh, I'm the big boss man. And nothing can phase me. But just seeing the shield slowly starting to break and he's, you can see him losing his fucking mind as she's telling him all this to the point where the young innocent boy in his army fatigues at the wedding in the first movie is completely gone and he just cold cocks the woman that he he at one point loved. and. I just think it's fucking, you know, again, you know, these two are the two, two of the greatest American movies of all time, two of the greatest movies of all time. So uh, I wanted to kind of bring a little bit of that, something a little, a little curveball into the question here. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we examine a marriage in crisis. Jessica Pickens from Comet Over Hollywood is here to discuss 1936's Dotsworth. Our guest today, you might know from the film website Comet Over Hollywood and at Hollywood Comet on Twitter, Jessica Pickens joins us today to talk about Dodsworth. Jessica, thank you so much for joining welcome, us. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. I look forward to it. This is uh, very cool. I, I didn't think about it until today, but you've been doing Comet Over Hollywood for a, a quite a long time. I remember coming across a blog post from it back when, when uh, Tom and I were in film school. A topic our listeners love when we talk about, so I'll, I'll get off that topic quickly. But I, I, you've been doing Hollywood Comet, uh, Comet over Hollywood for for how long now? I have. I started it back in college in 2009, so I think that's 13 years now. Um, I can't believe it's been 13 years. <laughs> so yeah, I've been doing quite a while. Um, started when I was in journalism school and just kept on. Recently, you spoke to was it George Shakiris about his <laughs> memoir? That was very cool, right? Yes, I talked to George Shakiris back in November of 2021 because um, he recently came out with a memoir, like you mentioned. And I one of my early first favorite films was the 1961 version of West Side Story. So that was just. 14-year-old me would have died uh, because it was just such a such a thrill to speak with him. And that's, you know, I should stress, like, you are uh, a big movie musical fan. You do, uh, one of the, the regular features you do for a long time was, was Musical Mondays. Mm-hmm. You are a big musical fan. You're a very musical person. And that's why I'm so glad we brought you on for this very dour drama. <laughs> really, uh... <laughs> just... Absolutely not a song in anyone's heart at any point in this film. I, I like sad movies too. I guess I like to be sad. No, it's it's not entirely sad. You know, it's it's just about a difficult topic that we all face. 
part of the, you know, I have to concede part of the reason, uh, you know, I, I asked John for this film in particular, I had remembered you being one of the people tweeting about when they finally did the restoration of Dodsworth and put it out on Blu-ray, because Tom and I are both big home media nerds. Um, As she can tell from the wall behind her. <laughs> That's true, yes. I'm jealous um, of shelving. But I... I uh, don't be, it's the it's the anchor across the my life. <laughs> <laughs> I went back to double check before I asked you, and that's when I came across perhaps my favorite thing, which is when they announced that Warner Archive was putting out a Dodsworth <laughs> Blu-ray, uh, you made a video dancing to, <laughs> I believe, and I may get the film wrong, It's, it's <laughs> miracles happen from either The Princess Diaries or The Princess Diaries 2, am I correct? It was, it was the first Princess Diaries, yes. <laughs> okay. okay. I was very excited. <laughs> Which also, for, for folks playing at home, means that on this National Film Registry podcast, both Princess Diaries films have been referenced <laughs> this season. So go to, your, go to your You're Missing Out bingo cards and see if you can cross that off. Uh, update, update that wiki. <laughs> um, so once I thought about that, I, I, I asked, I'm so glad that, that you came by for this. Uh, you know, it's especially because Dodsworth is not necessarily the most well-known title out of this season, you know, in a year where we're talking about uh, The Godfather or All About Eve, people see Dodsworth on the list. And the thing that I think is so interesting about this film and what we'll get into it is a lot of people who see it on there may not know it, but anybody who does know it is not going to argue that it shouldn't be in the registry, which I think is a really interesting element of this film. Um, So before we talk about what we like about it. Let's talk about what the National Film Registry had to say. Here's what the Library of Congress had to say about Dodsworth. In this highly acclaimed adaptation of Sinclair Lewis's novel, Walter Houston plays Sam Dodsworth, a good-hearted middle-aged man who runs an auto manufacturing firm. His wife, Fran, Ruth Chatterton, is obsessed with the notion that she's growing old, and she eventually persuades Sam to sell his interest in the company and take her to Europe. He agrees for the sake of their marriage, but before long, Fran has begun to think of herself as a cosmopolitan sophisticate and thinks of Sam as dull and unadventurous. Craving excitement, Fran begins spending her time with other men and eventually informs Sam that she's leaving him. Sam meets an attractive widow, Mary Astor, who seems to understand Sam in a way his wife does not. When Fran returns to Sam after being rejected by her suitor's family, Sam gives in but in a short time, he comes to his senses and returns to the widow. Dodsworth was not, well, not going to read that. The statement also says what it was nominated for, which ruins our game. But that's the rest of what the National Film Registry had to say. In other words, they kind of just gave us a long synopsis of the movie. Yeah, they sure did. Sometimes they have essays that are, like, about why it's important. Sometimes they give us a synopsis. My favorite, though, as we've talked about before on the show, their write-up for My Man Godfrey spends half the time telling people not to watch the remake, which is uh, so weird yeah. and petty. Which I've seen, and it's being about to be released. <laughs> the Niven remake, is it? Yeah, it's, um, I can't remember who's releasing it now. I've, I've not seen the Niven remake. Not great. Ever. Well, it's a musical, so I've seen it. <laughs> it for that reason okay okay um, i love david niven i love june allison it's just not a movie that should have been remade but yes hey this is the second time this season we're talking about a movie from the list getting remade as a musical that maybe shouldn't have happened because we just did ninochka 
Oh, which had yeah. Silk Stockings, a movie that's also there. Yeah, it's okay. It's better than yeah. it's better than the My Man Godfrey remake, and it's better than the musical remake <laughs> of The Awful Truth. So, <laughs> I I didn't even know that existed. Mike. Yeah. Well, I know what Mike's doing this weekend. <laughs> and you know what? Listen, to, to to be fair to the registry, you know, in regards to Godfrey, movies have never done anything about relationships before. So all you got to do is say, "Here's a movie about a relationship. Here's what happens. Obviously, it's important." There's, well, I think they also they <laughs> they wanted to, to clarify. Say. They wanted to clarify because there may have been people looking at this and going, Dodsworth, oh, they must be talking about the fat cat from Looney Tunes who sounded like W.C. Fields, um, which was also named Dodsworth. But no, we should clarify. It's the Oscar-nominated uh, Walter Houston film. Our boy, Walter Houston. Yes, second time on this season because we did Treasure the Sierra Madre as well. Quite he different is... Walter Houston. Well, yes. I think he's equally debonair in both. Well, listen, I know which Walter Houston I'd prefer to run away to Italy with. And it's not the one in Dodsworth. I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> that, is, that is the funniest thing is we just did Treasure of the Sierra Madre a few weeks ago where he's playing, you know, the old man. And then watching Dodsworth, I have to admit, there was a part of me that went, oh, Walter Houston was kind of a fox in his day. Well, Did not, yeah. uh, was not prepared for that. Doesn't it also, couldn't, it, couldn't you kind of headcanon it that his character in Treasure is Dodsworth? Because he's got like, because <laughs> well, he's got like that. He's got that wisdom and everything of like, I've had highs and I've had lows, so I'm not going to go nuts about finding gold in them there hills. So it's like, oh, you know, he ran off with Mary Esther and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, this you is. Know, he, he tried to open a transatlantic airport and uh, it, it tanked. He ended up in Mexico <laughs> and uh, Humphrey Bogart ends up uh, causing him some trouble. Jessica, I'm going to start with you. When was your first time seeing Dodsworth? I mean, obviously you're a big advocate for it. So what, what was your experience with the film? That's hard to say. I think I probably saw it in college and I remember liking it a lot then. And then I really, you know, it's until it was released recently, it was sometimes hard to catch. So I remember revisiting it again before the release, probably two or three more times whenever it was shown on TV. And I I just liked it more and more. And it's one of those movies that you just can pick out something different every time you watch it, I think. And Tom, was this your first time seeing it? Had you seen it before? Uh, yeah, this was my first time. I am one of those people that you were mentioning before that never even heard of this movie, uh, despite kind of falling into like a William Wyler hole after uh, Five came back, you know. And um, I didn't even, you know, I even went into this. I was like, I don't even know what this is. So I'm not even going to look up a synopsis. I'm just going to press play and see what happens. And uh yeah, it, it added a pleasant surprise to the experience because it feels like at the beginning, you know, it's going to be set on the boat the whole time. That's what I thought. And then it just mm-hmm. kept growing these like twists and turns, not even like twists and turns, like it's a Shyamalan movie or whatever. But like, I went, oh, okay. It's got a bigger scope than I expected. It's going to be a little more fair and balanced, I guess, in a way by showing Dodsworth doing his thing and his wife doing her thing and, and all that. So, um, I think that's almost kind of the way if you guys, anybody listening hasn't seen this movie yet, the registry ruined it for you, but press pause, watch it now and just kind of be surprised. Especially because of how like, like we joked before, how kind of dour and sad it is. You don't really expect uh, a code movie to kind of be this sad and just melancholy. No, I I mean, it, it is a thing that is, because I think that the thing that this did that so impressed me, I first saw Dodsworth 
I want to say like two years ago. It was a little before we started doing the show, actually. Because it was a movie that was, as Jessica noted, it was kind of hard to find. So I think Mm -hmm. I had seen part of it once on like, you know, when you're flipping channels through and you see TCMs running something and you have to do the math in your head of like, how far are they into this? Am I going to be mad at myself if I if I try and watch it like halfway through? So I believe I watched a little bit of it, Um, which is why I think I had it in my head from that like half viewing. I don't know why I had it in my head that Mary Astor is in this movie more than she actually is. I had it in my head that she's like a much bigger part mm-hmm. of this movie, and I forget that she just kind of pieces out for a good chunk of it. Right. But yeah, so I watched it maybe the first time two years ago, and I was very struck by, it's not just a, you know, we say dour, but I think part of it is the fact that it is a very subtle movie. It's yeah. a very, uh, it's not doing what a lot of films, you know, uh, you do find like when you see the year on it, you see 36 and you know what the plot's going to be. You have a feeling there's going to be a lot of scenes of people kind of really stating where they're at and giving you their headspace and, and saying things, you know, a little more bluntly with this film in particular. One thing it does that I thought was so great is there's so many moments that it gives you just enough that you, it trusts you in the audience to connect to what that character is feeling, which means you kind of have to go into yourself to get to that place. You know, you're not having, I think too often movies either of that time or even today will have a character kind of deliver a speech that lays all the emotions out or lays all of the meaning out to somebody. And then you and the audience don't have to do any work. You don't have to feel it. But that incredible moment, um, one of my favorite moments in the film, maybe my favorite, when Mary Astor sees uh, sees Fran flirting with the guy and just mm-hmm. says, my dear, don't. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing else said. I love that. Part. It's so good. I mean, that that line delivery, I, I think in my notes I said that line delivery alone gets it in the registry. Like, because you, you, you feel the tension of that moment and you also feel embarrassment for Fran in a way. Like, because there's nothing further, there's nothing dramatic, it takes you back to like whenever you've been called out for getting out of line. You know what I mean? Like it really takes you on that ride for any of those characters, which I think is so impressive. I, I think you know it's because we're charting like the history of cinema with this podcast and everything. It feels a lot more literary and more patient than a lot of uh, you know than movies were at the time. They tended to be more populist entertainment machines, and this one is very patient and very subtle very almost stage bound in a way and uh to kind of jump over your point my i think my favorite part in the movie is similar to yours in the the unspoken thing between fran and um edith which is when edith uh when fran says uh you know i hope to look uh as good as you when i turn 35 and she kind of just goes like yeah yeah, uh, I hope to look as good as your age when I turn that age or whatever. Like, just that little yeah. bit of like, yeah, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. Yeah. It's it's fine. I've been there. I, like, I love that little bit. You both mentioned that it's stage-like. And I was going to also say, so it did come from a play. Um, Walter mm-hmm. Houston was in the play. Um, but what I like about it is that a lot of, especially early sound films, when they were adapted from a play, it's literally like especially the very early sound films they're just filming a play or there's just incredibly long scenes like a good example i just watched golden boy 
and with just how some of the apartment scenes are, um, you can tell it was a play because of the length of the scenes. And I don't feel like any of it has that like stage to screen feel to it where it's like, oh yeah, the, yeah. this was a play, you know, cause the way I, probably Weiler, you know, directed it and did the, the cuts and the filming, like none of it felt overly long or anything like that. So I never got that sense of like, oh, well, we just are doing this exactly like they did it on stage. No, I, I mean, I agree with you fully. I think when, when we're saying stagey, we mean it more in the sense of like actually having oh, right. the patience to let characters react as mm-hmm. opposed to as opposed to the compulsion that some films have. Because I mean, we were talking about this, in fact, um, we recently did Love Me Tonight, the, the Ruben Mamoulian, um, uh, Maurice yeah. Chevalier film. And that is coming on the heels of several Ernst Lubitsch Chevalier films where all of the musical numbers are just point the camera, shoot, Maurice is going to talk to the camera, and we call it a day. And Mamoulian really kind of embraced filmmaking techniques, and he's playing with the camera, he's moving things around. And I think the same way, like, you know, you mentioned that this was a play, and yet, while I, I acknowledge that that is true in my head, thinking of some of the visuals in this movie that I, I feel are inextricable. Like, I think that this movie does not work if you don't have that incredible camera movement in of him standing by the window, and mm-hmm. then that great shot from behind his head as he's walking through the crowd, which, right. for those of us, for those who have been listening to every episode this season, weirdly gets uh, semi-replicated in primary the john f kennedy documentary we covered earlier in the season where they shoot kennedy from behind walking through the crowd the same way and it has the same impact and to me i can't imagine everything that follows having the same emotional weight to it if you don't have that great mm-hmm. you know semi silent semi montage of him leaving the factory i think if you have a scene of dialogue before that it ruins it and i think if you don't have that at all it ruins it so i I, what I'm saying is, I, I, I know you're absolutely right that it was based on a play, but my, my brain just goes like, that doesn't work. That can't work, you know? Right. It is told, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I haven't seen the play. I wasn't alive in 1934. Um, but it does, there's just so many, like you said, incredible shots. Like, I, I love when um, they're on the boat, the, the first night of the cruise, and they, they dress for dinner, and that's a big faux pas because you, you don't, I've never been on a cruise, but I even know this. You don't dress the first night out. You're all, you wear your street clothes. And, you know, I, I love how they kind of shoot from below as they're walking in and you can tell, like, it emphasizes that they're the center of attention and everybody's like, what are you doing? You know? Um, and it really kind of shows that while she's trying real hard to be sophisticated, they are just a couple of Midwestern hicks. And that's, that's one of my favorite shots. Um, but I, that, for, that opening shot is probably like one of the best, in my opinion, there's a lot of really great film shots, but that, that that's up there for me. And I think that, you know, part of what I love about it too, is like, I, I remember, uh, I'm going to want, this is my last time I'm going to say it. Audience don't yell at us in the reviews in college. Uh, you know, we had a professor who talked to us about, like he said, one of the greatest tricks you can pull, in, if you're making a film, is to give your audience all of the information, the who, what, when, where, before anyone says a word. Mm-hmm. And the example he points to, which I think is, you know, one of the key ones, is, is Chinatown, 
where you know we we pan into that courtroom proceeding and and you see the clock and the guy holding the newspaper about sea biscuit and the costumes and it just just by looking at it and the little visual hints it tells you the who the where the when and all that before anyone talks this with that shot with the you know the the, the name and the you know the sign on the window and panning down to the newspaper and everything and the way the crowd reacts to him and Houston's body language you know i mean that's really all it is is him standing in that window and his posture tells you everything you never have to have him say how he feels about retiring because mm-hmm. that silhouette and that posture tells you it all and i think that that's just such a such a masterstroke right from the start it kind of shakes you and because we you know with this show we were doing all these films in the registry sometimes we hadn't seen them before sometimes you know they're they're not as familiar to us so it's always good when you watch something and you know sometimes we got to watch it and we're like halfway through going like all right where where is this clicking and this is one of those cases where from that first shot you do just get that sense of oh we're in good hands we got this it's gonna be a wrap. <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean and it's true you know we did a weiler last season we did do um best years of our lives uh that oh, was yes. the first weiler yeah. to get into the registry in 1989 and i do find it interesting in a way um one of the things that we've come across on this show is there's a question of not just what got in but why it got in when it got in there is something so interesting about the fact that you know, 1989 is the first year of the Library of Congress's registry, and that's Best Years of Our Lives gets in and Gone with the Wind. And it's a class of essentially 25 movies that you look at, and every single one of them, for the most part, you go, yeah, okay. A few that maybe, like, the crowd is in the first year, and that's just, you know, that's lost pu- its place in the public consciousness because Warner Brothers has kept it locked in a vault and doesn't want you to see it. I know. Sometimes. That's one I will be dancing and if it's released, <laughs> I love that oh, movie. Oh, believe we will be we will be fully with you. Uh, as as will our guest in my you know because uh, we it was the only time I got very nervous because we would have listeners reaching out going, "How can I watch this?" And I'd go, "Do you work for Warner? You have to tell me if you do. It's entrapment." Look for a bootleg cop online. <laughs> I have many a great DVD. Well, trust me, I've for one of our previous episodes, I uh, wanted to watch Disraeli, which is only available on VHS. So I had to uh, I had to rip the VHS tape. It's quite a time. Wow. With this season in particular, like Dodsworth is one of those titles that you you do tend to look at and wonder, like, where was its place in the public consciousness in 1990 when they were deciding the second batch of 25 films? They went. Well, obviously, this has to get in. And and what happened in the ensuing 30 years that now the rest of us are here? You know, uh, I think, Jessica, you tweeted earlier today that you'd rewatched it. And we're telling people, like, seek it out if you haven't seen it. Like, this is well worth watching. But, like, it's so fascinating that it kind of, that it was selected as quickly as it was in the registry as opposed to other Weiler films or other films, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine it's part of Weiler. I could be incorrect. There was a lot of um, hubbub publicity-wise with um, Mary Astor's life going on at the same time that it was filming. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that. Um, I was brushing up on all that this week, 
reading um, Joseph Egan's book on her Purple Diaries. So I don't know, you know, that was an important media and court case at the time, too. So while Dodsworth was being filmed, so perhaps that's part of it. I don't know. And to be clear, that's not a, in no way a critique of Dodsworth. More just one of those oh, fascinating yeah. things well, of like... It is just... It's just, you know, it is interesting because it's in the same election year as uh, A Woman Under the Influence, John Cassavetes. Yes. And, you know, watching this movie, it really does feel like there's a direct link between the two in a way that I wasn't expecting, especially for its time period. Like, you you have to expect that Cassavetes must have watched and really embraced this movie of just kind of just watching the slow disintegration of a marriage where at least in his movie there's this weird like sad blue collar kind of happy ending of we're gonna stick it through no matter what even though things are insane where it's like in this one also a happy ending but still melancholy in its way of just like yeah they kind of wasted a lot of time with each other when clearly uh it wasn't gonna work out and it's tough to get there and this guy has to eat a lot of shit watching his wife cheat with a lot of guys on this trip across Europe, which again, kind of something that happens in a woman under the influence where Peter Falk keeps walking home. It's like, what's this guy doing in my house? It's it's, very, it's, just, you know, it's interesting yeah. that must divorce or whatever, or domestic issues must've been on their minds this year. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's also interesting that, you know, one of the things that I think made this film uh so compelling uh to me you know rewatching it is just the fact that it never it never really has a, a defined breaking point moment in the way that you know a lot of films would where even with everything that's going on you know it's not like there's a moment where you know in some dramatic way oh he walks in on her or she walks in on him and it's like that's the moment we're done you know, when she is ultimately rejected by the, the man she wants to marry by her very cold, uh, you know, uh, mother-in-law-to-be, uh, he goes back and only then kind of realizes, I think, what makes this film so uh, heart-wrenching in a way, which is this film asks us to consider something that a lot of movies don't want us to consider, which is two people looking at each other and realizing I don't actually love you anymore. Like I don't, I'm, I, I don't want this anymore, which is quite frankly, the most common cause for relationships ending in the real world. And the most uncommon reason relationships end on screen, yep. which I think is so interesting about this film. And I think to me, you know, when I first saw it, I was in my twenties, I'm sure. And I think as I've, now, I'm not saying I relate to this, but as I've gotten older and I'm around other people who are also growing older, that desperation that Ruth Chatterton's character has um, and that fear of aging. And that, that has resonated with me as I watch people in my around me um, and how they react to it as well. And I feel like that's still extremely relevant how, you know, she goes from her darker hair and she bleaches it blonde to look younger and how she's with these younger men and how she's at first really excited that her daughter's having a baby but that means I'm a grandparent and that means I'm old so yes. like so that like that whole that cha- complete like 
range of emotion she has right then. I feel like Ruth Chatterton is not somebody who's discussed as much. I mean, her career pretty much ended by the end of the 30s, I believe. Um, she did a lot of stage work as well. But she is very good in that movie. Um, just as really... Um, you know, I mean, she does kind of play a not very nice person, but, you know, you have to think that something brought them together at one point. It's just that I guess they grew apart as she he, he was preparing, as she says, diving into old age, and she's not ready for that yet. Well, and I think part of that, too, is, you know, I mean, obviously, we're talking about the 30s. We're talking about a different time. You set up so brilliantly in the first time we see them together. Because something I love is that the two of them are bickering when we first see them about, you know, well, I thought you liked my friends. Well, I don't want this and that. And, and you feel in that moment like, oh, this may be done immediately. And then when the other people come in and Dodsworth is arguing with his friend and she's off with hers, once a new form of opposition is presented for them, which is a friend telling Dodsworth, well, you're never going to actually quit working. And, you know, the friend, once they have a new form of opposition, that's when they come back together and are like, you know, I love you and this and that. And I think it's so interesting because what they really kind of are as characters is two people who they got married, they had kids, he had a career, and it was just barreling ahead and barreling ahead and always thinking about like, yeah, but, you know, we'll have time to travel, we'll have time to do stuff. Once we're once we get through all this, you know, once we get uh once we put all that and we retire, and then when it got to that point, Fran is in the position of thinking, Great, I have been waiting all of this time. She's been patiently essentially waiting for life to begin. Yeah. She's been putting all of her dreams and ambitions on hold, waiting for life to begin when he retires. And he views retiring as the start of the end. And I think that that's so great because one thing that I, I really love about this film is I, I was reading that uh, allegedly William Wyler wanted to make Fran's character more sympathetic and well-rounded and that Ruth Chatterton was the one who pushed for making her right. more, I mean, you know. And what I love about that is that I think there are a lot of movies where the the female character, the wife character, is self-interested and self-motivated, and it makes her out to be the evil witch type. And this never fully gets there because instead, what I love about her performance and her character in this film is that she is never more evil, quote-unquote, or self-interested than any of us are capable of being in a way that all of the things that she's feeling and all of the emotions that she's dealing with are the insecurities that most of us deal with and a lot of us deal with. And so we, even though she is an, an air quotes, unsympathetic character, you have to understand where she's coming from because she makes you feel that desperation and feel those emotions. Mm -hmm. and. Even by the end, Dodsworth recognizes that because what I love so much is when he confronts the man she's going to marry, when he says, you know, you're, look, I'm not, you're obviously giving her something that I was never capable of giving. He just like kind of tosses that off as though even he's accepted like, 
Yeah, listen, you know, whatever works. Um, you know, I, accepting his fault in this, which I think is such a great balancing act that you really don't see a lot. No, you really don't. And um, it, re- it really is all about that desperation. And almost to the, like, where it's his flaw that he knows who he is and he knows what he is. And he's mm-hmm. going to be comfortable the rest of his days. And he's... uh kind of blind to the fact that like mike said she kind of put everything on pause because we get these hints you know she's got her own independent money you know from her family that she inherited and that she went she spent time in europe during you know her schooling that she's she kind of almost grasped all that stuff she wanted but then she put it on hold for dodsworth and her child and now you know it's almost and it's almost like even at the start she kind of doesn't even like want to do this. She's just doing it again because Dodsworth wants to do it. But then mm-hmm. getting that taste and getting this that she's now no longer a big fish in a little pond. She can now kind of see that there's more to it than the four walls of the Dodsworth factory in, you know, Hicktown, USA. And, you know, she never rubs the affairs in his face. She's always actually like really cautious to like not rub it in his face until he pretty much catches her and is like, listen, come on. I was in the other room. You woke me up. Like you're not being subtle anymore. Um, yeah. Also again, in 1936 in a movie about a relationship where a woman could be seen as unsympathetic. Gotta give the movie credits that he never slaps her. Like, it's weird yeah. to say, like, there's, like, you know, he never hits her, you know, oh, you're out of control, dame. It's always just like, nah, like, I'm mad because I love you, but, like, also, I get it. This sucks. You know, a lesser movie, a B movie at Warner's or whatever, he would have, like, slapped her, you know, trying to knock some sense into her. And kind of glad they didn't. <laughs> Makes it watchable these days. It would have been really out of character to him for him too, because even though he is like they try it, yeah, try, he's not simple minded, but he is very kind hearted. And I think, like y'all said, yeah. Yeah. at his core, he loves her. And I, even though she wasn't as much of a sympathetic character, like I do feel, even though it's it's not one of those movies where you're like, oh, thank God she's gone. Like I still, even though I want yeah. him with Edith Cork, right. I still feel kind of sad at the end that it didn't work out. And, you know, they have this daughter back home that's probably going to be very confused about why all this happened and what was mom doing? Because that, that'd be weird if I if you heard about your mom gallivanting in Europe. Um, but, yeah, you still feel a little bit sad that all this didn't work out because they were together for so long. Well, I also think in, in adding balance to everything and keeping her not being one-dimensional, it doesn't really punish her at the end because as much Mm -hmm. as like we like jessica says you kind of feel sad that it doesn't work out for them you still get that like she's gonna be fine you know Mm -hmm. she's got her own money she'll eventually find another you know viennese prince or whatever that'll you know swoop her off her feet and you know all of that stuff she's she's gonna be fine it's not like she's gonna be thrown into poverty row because of this it's really just more of again like yeah they had they just had a grandchild and they have this young they have this daughter you kind of just wish you know like we all wish the family could be happy and everybody could just be happy and no drama mm-hmm. but in the end it doesn't punish her which again i think is great and adds a lot of shading 
to this movie that, you know, again, why I think this movie's in, in 1990, it has the kind of shading and patience that you don't really get in uh, populist uh, stories that try to do something like this. And Jessica, I should note in the interest of clarification, Tom is not saying, oh, you know, uh, he didn't hit her as in we think oh, no, the Walter yeah. Houston character would. More, right, more no. that we deal in we deal in old movies, and here on you're missing out. It's very nice anytime we don't have to say that's a problematic element. Right. It's always nice for us. We can get through a whole movie. Yeah, and 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 in terms of opposite of problematic, it's actually pretty modern that Walter Houston's just like, yeah. hey, right, listen, whatever, gallivant, you know, figure things out. I'll be here, you know, if you figure things out. He's a bit of a Leopold Bloom in that way, which is like, if anybody's familiar with, with Ulysses, the, the Joyce novel, like the whole premise of Ulysses is Leopold Bloom, who is our hero, he's our, who's our Odysseus parody in this, leaves the house so that his wife can have an affair. The beauty of it, you know, for anybody, is that the whole book is focused on his character, Leopold Bloom. And then the last chapter is, is called uh, Molly's Soliloquy, commonly. And it's just a straight, like, 15 pages, no punctuation monologue from Molly, his wife's point of view. And suddenly this character who, for the rest of the novel, has been pretty much off screen, having an affair, you should by the end of this be like, well, goddamn her. And then with this last chapter, and her talking about, like, I remember this young man who wooed me and who he used to be. And I always thought like, it'll just take six months of him at the office or a year of him at the office. And then I'll have that man back. And that man never came back. And, and how the thing that Molly says in that soliloquy that I think is maybe true for Fran's character in this film too, is this feeling of, I would still be with my husband if he were still the man that, would read me poems when we were sitting on the hill in the meadow. I think that the beauty of this film, in a way, for me, the first viewing, my read on it, in a sense, was like, you know, Dodsworth knows who he is, and, mm-hmm. and uh, Fran's still stuck in the past. But that's not entirely true either, because a, a great scene in this film is after Dodsworth comes home from Europe and he's home with the family. And, you know, because the daughter and her husband have moved in to the house and he's puttering around the house going, where's my mail? Your mother always put the mail there and your mother always put the mail here. And then a moment that I had to do some research and dissect that I think is great. uh, He gets into a fight with his friend about a puzzle they were building. And he goes, you know, why why is there a cow there? Well, because Mrs. O'Leary's cow started the Chicago fire. He goes, no, it didn't. It didn't start the Chicago fire. And his friend goes, well, I was there in the 60s. Well, the fire was in the 70s. What I love about that is that I I looked it up, and he's right. I mean, obviously, we know, like, the cow didn't actually start the Chicago fire. But also, the Chicago fire was in the 70s, not the 60s. And why I think that's so important is that it's not just that he's temperamental. It's that Dodsworth's right. He's right about those facts. He... Because he loves facts, he loves information. When they're in Europe, he wants to go to all these factory tours. He wants to go see, he kn- he's quoting all these facts about princes and queens and all of that. And now he's come home, and he has a wealth and a font of knowledge, and no one cares. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the cow in the barn or the dates, the legend has become a fact. They're printing the legend, 
And he's the only one that actually knows the fact. And what he's struggling with there is, you know, I mean, look, there's his, you know, it's it's a common complex with, with men getting older where they're like, well, there's daddy's little girl and she doesn't look up to daddy anymore. But there is that element of like, he's sitting there knowing he, he's he's screaming at these people that he knows the truth that he knows these these facts and nobody really cares and then there's this incredible shot that i didn't notice the first time uh, i'll post it on our socials because i'm obsessed with it so much which is the son-in-law walks in and they cut to this two shot and there's walter houston slumped over on the chair looking slightly away and for a brief second the son-in-law turns and looks at him with such contempt. And even then, the son-in-law's not really the villain. You just get this visual representation of Walter Houston is the old man feeling like time is passing him by, feeling like because he retired, he's irrelevant. He's, he's, not, he's a stranger in his own home. But then there's the son-in-law looking at him with a face that almost says like, all right, when do I get to have my bite at the apple? When do I get to have my... Like, you, you got it all. You got the company. You had your own thing. You had all this money. It's my turn now. And I just think that's such a, an incredible moment that kind of, for the first half of the film, maybe you're sitting there going, well, Fran's just got to figure out who she is because Dodsworth's got it figured out. And then you realize, no, he knows who he was, but he does not know who he's supposed to be now. And, you know, I think that's pretty important, too, because his big turn is when he's with Mary Astor in Italy at the end. Mm-hmm. And his big turn is. I'm going to do all this stuff with the airports and transatlantic and you're going to come with me. Like he just kind of offhandedly says, you're coming with me. And she's like, me, you're bringing me. He's like, yeah, of course. Why not? Which you get the sense he would have not done that in his, you know, first marriage. It would have just been like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, Fran, I'm going to do this. And, uh, you know, you, you take care of everything and I'm going to go, you know, set up all this stuff where with her, he's finally got the sense of like, bring, bring, bring her in. I don't have to be the only one, you know, making all these solutions to these problems or whatever. I'm the o- I'm not the only one. And uh, again, it's subtle. It doesn't tell you that that was his big turn, which, again, I think informs him realizing it's over with friend with the way she like treating everybody on the boat at the end. Where he's just like, what the hell? Like, we're all in this together. Why are you do? Why are you being like this to these people? And he's just like, I, I, I can't do this anymore. So, again, subtle. Well, I like that the one scene you were mentioning where he's angry. I also interpreted it that he's also just upset about Fran. And, you know, I don't, yeah. I, I felt like that was really human because something else outside might be upsetting you, but you take it out on your humidor not being in the right place so the keys to the to the um liquor cabinet being with the son-in-law which also like the son-in-law is trying to be the man of the house now which shout out to baby john Payne, who i love in general just john Payne. this is first movie handsome as ever (laughs) and young david niven as the lover on the boat but yes i would believe me there was no world i wasn't bringing up (laughs) Uh, one of the, one of the weirdly many, uh, David Niven somehow got cast as weird pervs for a while roles. Doesn't make sense now when you, but then you watch like separate tables and you go, oh, I guess they thought this was his lane. Oh, but he's so good in that too. Oh, I love David Niven. He, he is. 
I think Niven's great in that film, but it is a weird thing when you get to the end of Separate Tables and go, I'm sorry, what was he accused of? <laughs> okay. <laughs> just, what, just one of those things where you go, kind of weird, this is the resolution. That they're yeah. like, it's okay. it's okay. Let him go back to the movies and do it again. Okay. Anyway, didn't mean to take us off on a Separate Tables tangent there, but, uh, you know. But no, I, I, you know, another thing too, though, about that, and you're right, just, I think another thing, though, is what else he's mad about in a way is when him and the wife split, when she stays in Europe and he comes home, I'm sure he has a feeling of, fine, she's walking out on the family. I have the family. Mm-hmm. I have my family unit back home. And he doesn't because he comes back and realizes his daughter's got her own life now. Yep. His daughter is, you know, she's got a husband. She's got all those things. He does not have that place in that in in that relationship anymore. And I think that there's maybe that realization for him in that moment of well, my my daughter's moving on, my you know, the rest of life is moving on, my company's moving on. If I don't have my wife, my partner who's supposed to be with me to the end till death, if I don't have that, then what do I have? Which I think is the real kind of conflict of this movie in a way, is this fear of these two people in the later years of their lives wondering if it's worth the risk to try and start something new versus sticking with what they had the whole time. And I I, I think that that's what makes that ending resolution so good and makes it so good that there isn't this sudden breaking point, but rather just these two people realizing no nah, this isn't this is not worth the fight you know like this is or even like she's still willing to fight but just the two of these people looking at each other and recognizing and finally confronting internally like i do not feel for you what i used to feel i have been telling myself that i do but i don't and i think that that's such a great and and really interesting way to resolve that And, you know, all of that is kind of help is like reflected in the Mary Astor role, which is he he gets to see like pretty much firsthand a woman who left her husband and is living her own life. And it's like it's not the end of the world. She's exploring. She's happy. She's doing all these things, you know, that it doesn't have to be the end to finally just wake up one day and just admit to yourself Things aren't the same they were 20 years ago. Things aren't even the same they were 20 days ago when we got on this boat. You know, the way all of these men are showing Fran that things can be different and you can have a more luxurious life than what Sam gave to her or you could go off and do all these things. She's giving him this lesson of, look, I did it. And, you know, especially at the time, it's kind of crazy that um, they even are so... Mm -hmm sympathetic and not like judgmental about divorce um i think i even saw in my brief research that this is like the first maybe you know like the first movie in the code era that doesn't have someone who gets divorced punished at the end because we're we're a while away from from governor reagan passing the no or putting in the no fault divorce right am i crazy that's that's right the 50s right when when does reagan do the no i don't remember i'm blanking ronald reagan Yes, he was the governor of California. Well, because he was still... Well, I know he was, but I'm just saying, because he was still acting in, like, the 50s. You know, he's he gets shot by Lee Marvin. 
By the way, by the way, again, people playing at home with their You're Missing Out bingo cards. Ronald Reagan came up. What the hell? Let's move on to something else. Check that one off. Comes up a lot. But um, no, I, I agree. I think it's. Yeah, I, I think it's so. That's so interesting. I mean, another thing I thought, too, watching this is it is so interesting that, you know, of course, it's a trip to Europe. Europe had kind of become a shorthand in a way in American film and storytelling, I feel like, to convey this, like, discovery of 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 new opportunities and, and shaking things up you know i, I think about um a, a story that we used to love here in the u.s a book that we used to love that was adapted many times in the first half of the 20th century was state fair which is this book uh and later movie and musical that's basically just this small family goes to the state fair the son and daughter have a emotional and and in some cases, we'll just be blunt, a very physical awakening, enough that when you watch the Will Rogers one, you go, oh, shit, they're saying that. Okay. Um, Truly shocking. What I noticed is that shift, whereas once it was the state fair and just going to, like, the more urban areas, as America became a bit more homogenized and the idea of the city lost its allure, we start doing that with Europe. People going to Europe and discovering different morals. You know, I mean, Ninochka, obviously is an example of, you know, Soviet girl goes to France, discovers this new morality. And that carries through all the way through to, uh, Jessica, I know you're a big fan of some of those live-action Disney films from, like, the 50s, 60s. Yeah, yeah. That we both had parents that presumably took us to Blockbuster and went, I watched Parent Trap as a kid, so here you go. <laughs> have you ever seen Bon Voyage? Oh, gosh. You know, I don't think I have. I know it's on my list, like, my DVD Netflix Q. Let me look that up. It, I don't think I have. It is from 1962. It's a Fred McMurray movie about him taking his family on a tour of Europe. And he is, in a way, like doing the Dodsworth thing of, I'm going to show you all the sights and all that. But instead, like, his daughter and son are just trying to hook up. Yeah, I need to see this. I can tell. <laughs> There's a lot of, like, they, they straight up just say the word sex a couple times. And it feels okay. really weird. And I, uh, it just, just because everything else has the tone of a Disney film of that era, same kind of music, same kind of attitude, it feels weird <laughs> to hear it in that context. But I do think there's something about the European element of this film, and particularly the introduction of Niven's character, and that great moment where in our viewing modern day, you see the way she's talking to Niven. And I guess because we're a little more, uh, you know, in modern audiences, we're trying to read between the lines and go like, oh, I bet they're implying that they're going to, you know what. And then there's that mm-hmm. great moment where he very coldly says to her, you know, don't start anything you don't intend to finish. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. God damn. It's like, a, it's like a slap in the face when you hear that. You're right? like, oh, it's boy. really just like, wow. And and it is that moment that I do kind of love, which is, you know, and I feel like you see it a lot in these kind of films that do this, you know, mm-hmm. American goes to Europe um, all the way through to, and again, this is coming up again, and I can't believe it, all the way through to now, if you watch Emily in Paris, it's the same kind of thing, which is like this, this woman character, you know, this, this woman character who wants to indulge the fantasy and the escapism of being flirty and, and being seduced and getting all these compliments. And then there's that little turn where the typically European guy turns cold and we remember that men are trash. Like there's that moment in all of these stories, even now, 
Again, folks, playing at home with your bingo card. Second mention of Emily in Paris this season. Uh, oh, anyway. Oh, oh, excuse me. Amelie in Paris. Emily, Amelie in Paris. That's right. Second time you've corrected me on that as well. You've got, and I don't but even I watch do... the show, you plebe. Uh, I love it. Uh, but there is that. Um, I do think that the that element is a part of it. The The way that these European men, the way that she interacts with these European men, and I do wonder in some cases how much of what she finds in them or finds drawn to in them is how how much of that is internally her just trying to stay young and wanting somebody mm-hmm. to look at her that way and feel that way and how much of that is her just responding to a different culture i mean early on she talks to dodsworth about their friends slash his friends and her being around one particular type of crowd and right. i think that all of us have had that where i'm sure all of us at some point in our lives have had the thing where we fall in with a group because we find them interesting and we get such a rush out of like, oh man, all of these people just get up and recite poetry all of a sudden or holy cow, these people just break out into dance. This must be so fun to be around. And it is for like a week. And then after a while you start going, oh, this is insufferable. I can't, how do I put up with you people? And you do kind of wonder like, Obviously, she was never staying with Niven, but even if she stayed with the, um, you know, the, the guy she was intending to marry, like, how long was that going to last? How much of this is really about him so much as her just getting to experience a different life for a moment? Well, also, it kind of has to be brought up. World War II is not far off from this. this is she, true. she was, she was kind of... They did she, not know that when they were making this. No, they yes. didn't. But, I mean, Hitler is kind of on the rise at this time, and things are getting a little shaky in Europe. And so uh, she was kind of maybe digging herself a hole she kind of wasn't uh, going to be able to get out of. but. Um, I, I like that all that stuff because you know she she thinks she knows you know you you read about or she had her little time in Europe when she was in school so she thinks she knows what high society is like she thinks she knows mm-hmm. all this stuff but the reality is another thing which again is like flipped not not so much flipped but contrasted with Dodsworth oh I want to go to all these places and learn all these things and then by the time he's in Italy before Mary Astor shows up he's literally sitting at the desk hey you got anything for me to do. Oh, have you checked this out? Yeah, I did that. Have you checked this out? Yeah, I did that. Have you checked this out? Yeah, I did that. Where at a certain point, it's just like all this, the magic you put into yourself, you you, you convince yourself is going to happen. The reality is, eh, there's only so much that's really going to keep you going for a while if you just, you know, he's only got so many facts he can learn and she's only got so much, uh, so many Mets. men are going to be only so polite until, you know, mm-hmm. it's time to, finish what you started also you were talking about getting in with the friend groups and the cultural i think it's interesting i don't know i only can think of what dodsworth calls her mrs palabal you know him mispronouncing the french lady's name um or however he said it but you know when she they're sitting together and having tea and they're eyeing paul lucas and um she's encouraging have yourself a little flirtation that's what we French people do. That's what they do, at least in these 30s movies. They they cheat on each other. In the movies, I don't know if that's true. I can't, I cannot speak for real life. But in the 30s movies, if you're in France, you cheat on your husband. But I think they also, like, she thinks it's all glamorous. And while he's sightseeing, she's getting her hair done and having tea and blah, blah, blah. But I think at the end, they're getting a little tired of her, too. Because if you, oh, when yeah. he returns and he's done the um, detective work of, about Paul Lucas and she says, 
have you been talking to them? Don't listen to rumors. Well, why would they, why would they be gossiping about her? Aren't they her friends? Didn't they encourage it? (laughs) Or maybe they think it's gone on too long. Well, because she is kind of, you know, everything she does in that movie is, is an interloper. Like she has never shaken that. She never fully fits in, which I think is, is, and that's a great point you raise about that, that woman at the, you know, encouraging her to, to go have that fling. Uh, and I also appreciate you uh, playing it politely and saying that, you know, you're not going to speak for actual French people, that that's how they are. Uh, I, I know quite a few, so I'll say, yeah, no, that is. I'll take the heat on that one. I'll totally, yeah, that sounds about right. That tracks. Um, but, and also interesting, you talk about, uh, right, Paul Lucas, who uh, Tom mentions World War II, ends up, what is it? I think it's like a couple of years after this, he gets his Oscar for Watch on the Rhine, I think. Yes? Mm-hmm. Maybe? I don't know if I have my like facts so. right. He does, right? Okay. Yeah. See, I, I will I will concede this, Jessica, right now. Yeah. Having having read having read, you know, your blog and, and knowing your expertise, anytime I even touch a fact about classic Hollywood, I'm I feel just... afraid that I got it wrong. I'm like, it's it's it would be embarrassing to, to fla- like, face plant in front of you with your expertise. Uh I do think the other thing that's compelling about her storyline and his you know, Tom mentioned uh, there's only so many facts. You know, I also think the thing is, you know, and maybe uh, if you dissected it, you might find it a little unnosed, but it works so well in the film, which is he wants to go visit all these historical sites. When yeah, he's in Europe, it's all about historical sites. He is literally living in the past. Whereas she, mm-hmm. because she's off with all these men, she's, dancing, all look, she's, she's fascinated by a a life that never was. He's living in the mm-hmm. past. She's thinking about what could have been. And each one of them gets moments where they're confronted with what is and the reality of it. And what I loved is there's that, you know, Jessica, you brought it up earlier, and I want to make sure we talk about it more specifically, which is that moment when she gets the call that her daughter's having a baby, or that she gets the information that her daughter's having a baby. He gets the call. Because what I love about it is that he... That, that another film would just have her get mad immediately. But mm-hmm. that she is so happy that she's having a baby because she's happy for her daughter, right? And there is that moment of, I think, if he hadn't said the words, you know, grandparents, yeah. she would be riding high on my daughter, who is my, my, my friend, you know, we're, we're pals and I'm going to give her all this advice and I'm going to do all of this. And it's not until he says the word grandparent, which one thing I was wondering on this viewing, and I, I want to ask you guys what you think. And, you know, it just struck me. There are multiple times in this film where he says things that for lack of a better word, trigger her, where he says what we say, the exact wrong thing to make things better. Early on, when when he thinks, you know, she when she's saying, "I'm going to stay in Europe," and you know, there's all, you know, talking about these men and these opportunities, and he's got his hands on his shoulders and he says, "You know, you're really going to do that," and then he emphasizes, "After all these years," yeah, and you watch as Fran's eyes sort of tighten when he says that because it's the exact wrong thing, and when he mentions grandparents, it's the exact wrong thing to say. But what I wondered on this second viewing, because of the way that Houston deliberately delivers those lines in the way that he performs it and emphasizes them so much. And the rest of the film, his performance is so subtle and naturalistic that I do wonder 
does he know what he's saying in terms of I like so. is he just stumbling into the wrong thing or is he prompting her with yeah. like you need to grow the fuck up right I, now you I, know I, I, I think I think bringing up the grandparents was a total dig I think he did that on purpose because he she was newly blonde at that point I think I might be wrong I might be getting her hair color mm-hmm. timeline incorrect but I definitely think he was like that was a nudge and a and a dig for sure, and and because I think I think I agree with because also she's like don't tell anybody I'm a grandmother don't tell anybody about the baby and like the moment where I uh I, I think it's the Vienna guy comes in and she's like gives him this look and you can tell he's like he's thinking about it he's like I think I, I think I I might say it I think and then he goes <laughs> all right I'm not gonna say it but I'm like one grumpy point away from being like yeah i'm gonna fucking ruin your relationship with this guy so i think he's definitely because you know what he's he, he's made a lot of money he's he's a tycoon he knows how to mm-hmm. he knows how to push some people buttons. that's i mean they're definitely playing a little as we all know in real life that a guy like him is probably not as nice as he really was in this movie but he had mm-hmm. to know how to cut some throats metaphorically so I think I think he knew. Well, I think to your point right there, I think you see that too when he's sending her a wire and then sending the detective a wire, and he the the tone of hers is kind of soft, and he signs it Sam, and the detective letter or wire that he sends is signed like it's very it's a lot more punchy and signed Dodsworth. Like there's there's the two sides of him. There's business side and and Sam. Yeah. And I think what this does so well, I think that too many movies that try and tackle like, oh, the marriage falling apart, tend to put the blame on someone and then the other person's just the, you know, the harmless victim. Uh, I'm not going to get myself in more trouble. I already got yelled at on a different podcast for um, for uh, dragging Kramer versus Kramer, but uh, so I'm not going to do it again. But any of these movies that kind of like, that just take the approach of like either the man's a piece of trash and, you know, the, the woman's just got to kind of find her step again. Or the woman's a piece of mm-hmm. trash and the guy's just got to find a step again. What I love about this, and it, it does happen in other films from time to time, but what I love about this is for the first half or so, obviously she's acting out, she's flirting, she's doing whatever. But what has to happen in that is that there has to be a recognition on Dodsworth's part of his own failings. That he has to kind of confront over the course of the film that, that her actions and her behavior forces him to confront, like, where were my failings here and what are my failings as a, as a husband and as a person? And, and that, you know, it kind of pushes him to a point where he has to make a change too, which I think is just such a great balancing act. Because, you know, you talked about just, you don't, you wanted to see them get back, you know, not that you wanted to see them get back together at the end, but you feel a little sad that they don't. At the mm-hmm. same time, like, I think what this movie does so well is that now look i'm gonna say this up front is my honest opinion i'm sorry i don't think any of the guys that she goes after in the movie are as attractive as as walter houston so but hey no that that happens you know i'll I'll go i'll go one step further walter houston you you can step on me it's fine right stone Um, cold fox but the point is like (laughs) with which again is very different than our Ninochka episode where our guest described uh, Melvin Douglas as a five or a 7.5 if I've been drinking. So, you know, 
uh, aka his girl. Okay, hang on. I'm yeah, I was gonna say, it. Jessica, Jessica, before you get upset, know that her standards are this. <laughs> this is this is what she settled for. So you know things may be all out of whack. There. She su- she settled um, for Gumby in retirement. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one thing I'll say, while none of them are good thing, there is a moment where that beautiful sequence with the letter burning, right? Yes. Where they print the letter and pulls back. That is, and it's so romantic, and it's so, you know, it's so engrossing, and it's so 1930s version of sexy. I I shouldn't say that because Clark Gable was acting in the 1930s, and that's just the epitome. But you get what I'm saying. Beyond that, like 1930s version of sexy with that burning letter, that in that moment I do find myself just kind of going like, I hope it works out for those two. (laughs) Even though, of course, it won't. That would be a terrible movie if the rest of the time was just them happily married. But and I mean, honestly, in that if she moment, had to pick one, Paul Lucas was the best pick. So, I mean, you know, she's not going with Niven. Not a good choice with Niven. Um, no, Niven. You know, Niven seems like that character might, you know, be revealed to be in like the 1930s Epstein Island scandal or something. Yeah, he's he, like straight. Up, but that's what I love about Niven's character is that, as opposed to Lucas, who. Seems like an all-around pretty alright guy. Niven is the perfect first guy for her. Yeah. Because he is the epitome of... You know what it is about him? Is that Niven is a character who, if you are on the dating scene, that is a guy you look at and you know he's trouble and you don't even bother, right? Like, you look at that guy and he's he's talking you up for five minutes and you're already texting your friend being like, just call me I mean, and he's, I'm just going to walk he, away. He's already buttering but it, up. He's a butter, he come, his, his move is to butter up Dodsworth. Yeah. So he can kind of get um, Dodsworth on his side. So like, when Dodsworth comes in after their big fight, he's just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Don't even worry about that guy. He's, he's not trouble. And she's like, no, he <laughs> said like horrible things. And he's just like, what, do you want me to beat him up? Uh, whatever. Who cares? Like, But I'm saying like, but he's that guy who if you if you are dating, like, you know, like, Nah, buddy, move on. But if you've he been out of the scene for a while, but I'm saying, like, you know, it's one of those things where, like, when you've been out of the scene for a while, like, I remember I was, you know, when I, I back back when I, you know, I I'd gotten out of like a long relationship, I was dating again for the first time, and it was shocking how I just like the whole world was different, and you were suddenly like, there's apps for this stuff, now, and you're suddenly like, you realize in that moment, like, I used to be good at this, and now I can't tell who's well intentioned and who wants to steal my kidneys. Like, I truly, I'm just like, it's, it's at a loss. And what I love about Niven in that moment is that we all know from the minute he shows up, we're like, this is not, this is not a guy to cast your net towards. But she's so out of the game mm-hmm. that she just absolutely believes. She, she, she just misses all of the, uh, all of the red flags along the way, you know? And so when you have that moment where he tells her, don't start something you don't intend to finish, it's not just that he says something so cold. It's that you know that she's embarrassed. It's mm-hmm. it's she's not even mad. She's just like, oh, how could I have been so stupid? Mm-hmm. I think that's so great. And I think that actually gets to uh, something I I I just kind of started thinking about during talking all this is that there is an age gap thing in this movie, which again it's subtle, but I feel like a few times in the movie she says, "I was a child." I was a child, you know, you have to kind of mm-hmm. do the math. And even if she's not 35, like even if she's 40, you know, they have a child that is what at, at minimum 20, she's having a baby yeah. herself. So she must've been 
at oldest 20. She could have even been 15, 16, the way things were back in the day, you know, that nobody. Mm -hmm. So there's this thing about, she really is just inexperienced in all of this, that Dodsworth is most likely the only guy she's ever been with. And like, by the time Dodsworth married her, he has enough experience that he can look at a guy like David Niven and just be like, yeah, whatever. Like he's a guy, whatever. Great. Awesome. Who, you know, whatever. I've dealt with a thousand of them trying to, you know, become execs in my business or, you know, all that stuff. So there's this, it's, it's, there's this, like another thing in this movie, which is about experience and like lived in experience and, you know, experience you, you gain from a book, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he's, you know, cause he's living in the past. He's li- well, he's like living in books. He's living in the past. I lived my life. So I'm going to try to l- learn all the I can where she hasn't learned anything. All she has is stuff she learned from books and she's not ready for it at all. And, uh, mm. yeah, I don't know. I think, and it's I, I think there's also, uh, in that case, there's an element of, you know, they were so focused on his career and he was busy. And I think, and I'm not going to try and take this, I'm not taking this to too crass a place, but obviously it's an element of this too, which is, I doubt with how busy he was before retirement. And, you know, it was the thirties, not probably not a lot going on in their private life necessarily mm-hmm. right i don't think they were uh you know the film to me seems to imply not not the most frequently intimate couple if you know uh what I mean. you know toward the yeah I think i'm do. trying to be as trying to be as uh you know as as polite as i can but you know and you do get the the vibe that there is a sense when he talks to like i that there is this thing and it happens, you know, like one of the things you read about as you're getting older and, you know, you start, quite frankly, you're in a relationship in your thirties as opposed to in your twenties or whatever, is you realize like, right, it is entirely possible that I would, that we get so swept up with work and we've got things going on and we're going out with friends and this and that, like not even anything, you know, intimate in that way, but like you, some, you turn around and be like, when was the last time we just spent a day at home and just watched mm-hmm. a movie? Like when was the last time, xyz and i do think that part of what this european trip awakens in them is the realization of when was the last time that when dodsworth said i love you it was said with passion instead of said as a given as a you routine. know yeah because that's a big thing you know i think you know when was no the matter last how long we, when was the last time we nickelodeoned and chilled i mean come on folks. yeah exactly <laughs> but really like i think that that's and, I mean, obviously, this movie isn't going to be that blunt about it per se, but I do think that that is, and, uh, especially if that is the only person she's been with, you know, it's, I, I do think there's that the element there. That. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's also a thing with him, which is that, like you said, he's so busy all the time that it never really clicked with him that she was so young and that she yeah. was so inexperienced that it was almost kind of like, okay, almost like, I don't want to say control her or whatever, but like she was along for the ride, like you said. she put her life on pause for him. So he always took it for granted that they weren't on the same level, basically. So like, that's why when he meets Mary Astor, she's younger than him too, but like she's lived a life at this point. So she's, mm-hmm. they're able to meet each other on the same playing field because, you know, he's emotionally not a 50, whatever year old man. He's definitely a little immature in that, He's not as adept at handling his marriage. He's not as adept at kind of like realizing he's like, yeah, I know it's bad, but I kind of just have to stay with it because 
he's kind of, you know, doesn't want to do the hard thing, which is not the adult thing to do. And, um, yeah, so I, uh, I don't know, all that stuff of just, <laughs> what, what, I don't know. I'm kind of like losing my train of thought here just because it's so like a well-written movie and just so like, well, I, I, I just feel like, like, like an, like part of my language, but an asshole in, in the face of like something that like I could never even touch in my life as a writer. You know, it's like, Hey, you know, great. I'm not, I'm never going to touch well, I... William Wireless. So why am I trying? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mary Astor, I think, is also so her character of Edith Courtright is so unusual to him, and they call her like distinguished. And I just think she's a really kind of foreign, um, not literally, but she's just so different than what he knows from back home at, from Zenith because she she's kind of bored. She's traveled the world, but she's bored because she's alone and she's just kind of a drifter in a way, and. His wife was, Fran was very much, you can tell, while he was busy, she was too, because she was keeping up, if they were one of the richest people in a small town, she was keeping up with the social circles and the country club, and obviously just, her daughter just got married, so she was planning a wedding and raising their child, so she had to keep up that pretense as well. Um, So she probably was also very busy and had to go play bridge or whatever, um, stuff that my grandmother (laughs) My grandmother played bridge, so I just assume everybody back then did. But Edith Cartwright was just so different, and I think one reason he's attracted to her is because she's so independent and lives a life that she's always wanted to, which Fran is trying to do, but she's also attached to somebody. So uh, it's it's I think in a way Fran, while she's jealous of Edith Cartwright, in a way. Um, wants to be like her but surrounded by men i think edith is much more independent and doesn't necessarily need a romance well i think it's also that element of you know what both dodsworth and Fran suffer from in a way in different ways is you know um kind of the and i'm using there's many people that have told the story but i'm just using it because it's more modern you know is the kind of madmen paradox of the the one thing that madmen did so well was Every time Don had stability, he wanted freedom. And then every time he got freedom, he wanted stability. And that is kind of the crux and the conflict of every adult has to go through when it comes time to either settle down or not settle down, which is accepting that to have one of these things means you sacrifice some element of the other. And that, you know, that there is that finding the value in in what's there. I think that what makes Mary Astor's character so interesting in a way is that I think where she stands out from Fran and Dodsworth is that Dodsworth and Fran each in their own ways. Cause you know, Tom mentioned the immaturity of Dodsworth. And I think that Fran is trying desperately to hold on to being a young woman in her twenties. Right. Mm-hmm. And Dodsworth is trying desperately to hold on to being a man in his forties. So they are ages right. apart in what they're trying to hold on to, but neither one is actually acting their age. What makes Mary Astor's character so great to me is that while Dodsworth and Fran keep doing everything based on what is supposed to be, she's supposed, you know, if she's going to be this young woman, oh, she's supposed to be blonde, and this is how it should be, and this is how it should be. And Dodsworth, he's staying with her because this is how it should be, and this is how family. Mary Astor's character is somebody who has just fully and completely gone into it is what it is mode. Like she is just, you know, Mm -hmm. Jessica, you made a great point when you said she's drifting. It's that she has just 
like the boat itself, she's kind of just gone into the water and she's letting the current take her where it takes her. And what makes the the coming together of her and Dodsworth so good is, you're right, she's bored. And maybe she needs somebody to bring a bit of stability there and to bring a bit of, no, we're going to do this. Even if, even if she's seen everything there is to see, now she gets to see it through his eyes and his point of view. And he needs somebody that can kind of tell him, like, listen, you're, you don't have control anymore. Like, you don't, you are no longer the top dog. You are no longer the man of the house. Like, just accept your place on the cosmic wheel. You know, which I think is such a good resolution for both of them. And I think that with with uh, Fran, one thing I think is so interesting is that we mentioned, you know, Dodsworth needles her with those lines about grandparents or about, you know, after all these years. And all it does is make her double down in this desperation to cling to, like, youth and freedom. It's not until she sits down with the prospective mother-in-law um, that the name I'm just completely blanking on now. Um, Marie, I can't pronounce her last o- name. But you know, Openskaya? Os- yes. Yeah, Openskaya. Right. That when you have that moment, I love that, that it's kind of like, I don't know how you interpret that, and please you know, let me know. My read on that, in a way, is that there is a way that you can kind of do, you know, and, and a lot of us do in relationships, especially when it comes to somebody of the, you know, uh, if we're dating somebody of the opposite gender and we look at that and kind of go like, well, they don't get it. You know, it's easy to look at your husband or your wife and go like, well, they don't really get it. And I do think there's something great about the fact that like this woman sits down and talks to her about like, you know, my dear, you can't have children. Like, listen, don't I for no for all intents and purposes. And I, I hate to be so crass, but. Her whole scene is just sitting down, looking at her, and going, "Don't bullshit a bullshitter." Like, come on, let's let's put our cards on the table here. And she, there's no fight left because Fran can't argue this one. You know, like when yeah. when this woman calls her out, she kind of just resigns herself to it. But I don't know, Jessica, how do you take that scene and 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 why that's the moment that finally gets her to turn around a bit? Well, I agree with that, and I also think that I think she's the perspective mother-in-laws the baroness sees right through her she sees the desperation and you know her son is is younger than her and she she one i think wants a few more of a future for her son to have children and all that but i think she also doesn't want him to be sidled with something that might not work out you know she sees it probably more as a fling and not true love um, or a future love kind of thing, you know. I I just think that she sees is like you're. This is you're kind of being ridiculous, and this <laughs> that's always been my interpretation. Also, I do want to make sure I acknowledge before we you know start the one. I do want to make sure we acknowledge because Tom mentioned you know the great writing. Uh, we have not brought up. It's I would not. I would argue that you know for the majority of this film, great dialogue, but. Not necessarily like the most quotable per se. And then you get to the end and you get the one two punch of you have to stop getting younger someday and love has got to stop someplace short of suicide. <laughs> Where back to back you hit us with it at the end. And both of those are lines that you go, I, 
if I wrote that, I would just hang my head on that and go home. Like, I would just be like, there, I did that. I, I, you know, I can't do much else, but I did that. But you get two of them back to back. Great lines. Hell of a good line. Oh, yeah. Weiler, he was good. And also, apparently, uh, Weiler and Niven did not get along. Speaking of Weiler, I should note, apparently, uh, Niven said that Weiler was bloody miserable and described him as a Jekyll and Hyde son of a bitch. Yeah. Mary Astor liked him a lot. I think she liked working with intelligent directors. From what I read, Walter Houston like liked him okay, but since he was used to doing the play, he thought the take after take after take was a little bit tedious, but it was uh, him and Ruth Chatterton definitely butt- butted heads. But I've read some arguments that part of why her performance is so good is that he kind of bullied her. <laughs> I mean, listen, I have no, I, I'll just say this. I have no problem believing A, that Walter Houston was a bit of a bully, and B, more so, I have no problem believing John Houston's dad could be a bit of a jerk. Not a problem in the world. Oh, you meant Weiler bullied her. Okay. I meant Weiler. No, that's fine. I'm Walter Houston. I'm sorry for dragging you, but it's also probably true. Well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna drag him, but I'm gonna say. I'm, I'm gonna say that the man who gave who sired John Houston, you know, the Ernest Hemingway of cinema. Uh, pretty sure he's probably okay with hanging out with Mad Men. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I meant. Um, Walter Houston, William Wyler, and Ruth Chatterton. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> Speaking of, oh God, I wish Walter Houston was able uh, able to live long enough to make a movie with Sam Peckinpah. That would have been something else. Uh, By the way, last thing I'll add, um, real quick. Did anybody come across this? That apparently in 1995, Milos Forman wanted to do a remake of yep. Dodsworth with Harrison Ford. Yep. He wanted to do that oh, right Lord. after making The People versus Larry Flint. Which probably means that the uh, the Fran role probably would have went to Courtney Love. Imagine! Just imagine for a minute a Harrison Ford... It would have been What Lies Beneath. <laughs> like, it wouldn't have been... Oh, my God. Um, just, just, I'm just, 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 just on a, just on a micro level, just imagine Harrison Ford meeting Courtney Love. What is that conversation Uh, like? (laughs) Um, did anybody else have anything they wanted to add before we wrap up talking about the Academy Awards? No, I think we kind of covered it on my end. No, I think that's it. So then, uh, Tom, how do you think this film did at the Academy Awards? Uh, I'll say nominated for four. I'll say screenplay, actress, actor, and, uh, well, I'll say, I'll say five. Screenplay, actress, actor, director, and picture. I think so. Interesting. Interesting call. Well, I'll tell you right now, it was nominated for best picture alongside Anthony Adverse, Libeled Lady, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Romeo and Juliet, San Francisco, The Story of Louis Pasteur, A Tale of Two Cities, Three Smart Girls, and the winner, The Great Ziegfeld. It was also nominated for Best Director, lost to Frank Capra for Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, nominated for Best Actor for Walter Houston, who lost to Paul Muni for the story of Louis Pasteur. It did not get a Best Actress nomination. However, Uh... it did get nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Maria Uspenskaya for her one-scene role. Weirder, it lost to Gail Sundergaard for Anthony Adverse for what is essentially a two-scene role. 
Uh, it was nominated for Best Adaptation, Lost to the Story of Louis Pasteur. And then it received two more nominations, Best Sound Recording, which it lost to San Francisco, and Best Art Direction, which is the sole Oscar that it won. So all those nominations, it only won one. And before I make my comments on that, because I know how you feel about this, Jessica, I saw a tweet about it. How do you feel about Dodsworth losing to The Great Ziegfeld? The Great Ziegfeld, okay, obviously this is a better movie. I bet, I think it won because it is an incredibly impressive looking movie. And it's big and it's long and there's big sets. I mean, it's it's impressive, but it's it's not storytelling wise the best. Now I will say, I know I'm hopping ahead. Story of Louis Pasteur, it is a surprise. When I first saw it, I was shocked how much I loved it. So I, I'm i not upset about those, nor I, am I upset about I'm, San Francisco. <laughs> I love San Francisco. San Francisco is great. Um, I, love, I love San Francisco. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think my problem with the Louis Pasteur win is that Paul Muni, I think, wins it again for uh, for Life of Emile Zola, like, the next year. So I'm just like, what are we doing here, gang? I don't want that one. That's coming up for us. I think that's a future. For some reason. Paul Muni is really good. He's good in it. I think we get, I, I think next season is I Am a Fugitive in a Chain Gang, and I think the one after that, or the next one after that, is Life of Emile Zola. Yeah, it's a weird batch of nominees. For me, I'll say that, you know, because I, I sat down with them all, I watched them all. Dodsworth to me is is head and shoulders above the rest. Uh, I think it's just, I think Tale of Two Cities is impressive. I like San Francisco. I think San Francisco is very charming. Uh, it's honestly just a Clark Gable showcase at certain points um, because Spencer yeah. Tracy, right? Spencer Tracy is the other one of that. He's sometimes he shows up in yes. that film. Uh, there's a couple times he's yeah. maybe uh, a bit, but Gable's incredible. Um, I will say this though. Uh, the, and of course, uh, the, I just watched it this morning. Had never seen three smart girls before. The uh, oh. Deanna Durbin uh, proto parent trap esque thing that, that yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, which has uh, Deanna Durbin, who uh, then I think the next year does One Hundred Men and a Girl, which has come up on this podcast a surprising amount. Um, not in the registry, but just Hundred Men and a Girl. Leopold Stokowski is in it, and. Yeah. It yeah. ends up 100 Men and a Girl wins best score over Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So the next time Disney sees Leopold Toskowski, he's like, hey, you're coming to do a movie with me. And that's how we get Fantasia. Um, the weird, <laughs> twisty thing. But I do want to acknowledge one thing. Well, besides the fact that this was the first Oscar year that gave out supporting acting awards. There is a movie that receives a, about six nominations this year is passed over for best picture but gets nominated for director and all of the acting categories. And I would argue belongs in this conversation, which is my man, Godfrey. Yes. Which is a crazy thing to look at that. That is that, that just got totally snubbed. Uh, that Dodsworth gets up. And yet today, like we talk about my man, Godfrey and Dodsworth certainly more than we talk about uh libeled lady. Speak for yourself. Oh, but you should talk about libeled lady. I, I like Level Lady. Lady. That's very charming. Anthony Edwards, I enjoy, you know, but it's not the best. Is that is that the most we'll be able to get you to drag a film on this show? You know, you're you're usually very polite and very positive. I, I was 
I was hoping, I was hoping I could get you to at least drag Great Ziegfeld. But you know, could we get you to turn on something? You know, is, is my question. Is there? Can we? Can we swing a Jessica Pickens heel turn at some point? You know? Oh, there's, there's some. <laughs> I'd have to think on that. It's it is easy. It's sometimes easier to talk about the movies you hate than the movies you love. Uh, <laughs> I think about them more sometimes. Yep. But no, I I the thing is, I like the Great Ziegfeld, but it it isn't maybe what I would have selected for the best picture that year. Listen, I, I do want to say you are welcome back on the show, especially if you want to come back and you have some grievances to air. Not about a film we're talking about. If you're just like, hey, man, I don't know. I just watched Joker last night and I want to yell about it. Like, all right, come on down for Mary Pickford's poor little rich girl. We'll give you 10 minutes to go off on, on you know, Todd Phillips if you want. We'll give her, we'll um, give her, we'll give her a five-minute spot on stage to talk about Joker. Uh, what is it? Uh, do a foley? More like foley a dumb. <laughs> thank you, Kyle. I'm so glad yeah, he jumped. Thank you, Kyle's one's contribution for that. Um, but all that to say, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us for this. This oh, yeah. is uh, Thank you for having me. Very cool. I'll say this now because we're uh, done with the episode and I, I won't embarrass myself as much when we were planning the season. I had my, you know, I gave Kyle my little list of like, oh, these are some like dream gets for me for this show. And uh, and you were on that list and we got you here, which is, which oh, is incredibly good. cool for me because I've, I, you know, like I said, I was reading Comet over Hollywood back in, in college. Uh, so before you go, why don't you, can you uh, tell folks a little bit more about Comet over Hollywood and what you what you do over there? Oh, well, I will tell you, it's a hobby. It's not my day job. I, I work in the corporate world in my day job. But um, well, we all do. Don't I worry started about it. Got to got to pay the bills. But I started it in college as um, I believe I was a junior. I was a journalism major. And my beloved journalism teacher, Larry Thames, said, people, you got to start a blog if you think you're going to get a newspaper job. Because this was when citizen journalism was really big. Um, I don't know if y'all remember or had the patch. Like they, they were like, mm-hmm. just, yeah, yeah. you didn't have to have a degree, I guess. I don't know. Anybody could write the patch. So like citizen journalism and blogs were really big. So I was like desperate to get a job. I was like, I, gotta, I have to start a blog. And so I went back to my dorm room and started a, a blog. It had a different name briefly um but comet over hollywood is inspired by the film name comet over broadway which is a k francis movie um because i was really into k i mean i still love k francis but i was really into her at that time and discovering her films and then i've just it's just evolved ever since i mean I don't know if you ever, if, if y'all ever um, have like an early piece you wrote and you go back and for some reason it has a lot of traffic and you're like, oh God, I wrote that in 2010. Don't, don't read that. Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's yep. how I feel with some um, But then it's just evolved when I um, did get newspaper jobs. I tried to write in a more newspapery style, I guess, but Focus a lot on musicals in 1939. Um, everybody's like, but you only like musicals. I like, I like a lot of stuff. I really like uh, World War II and World War II th- films. So I try to write about those as well. But um, over the years, I've interviewed different people, gone to the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival, which I cover on there. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a journey that has taken me places that I didn't expect when I started it out when I was, what, 20 years old, 21 years old. So it's been it's been my my, my main hobby. 
I want to tap in here. I want to know who your favorite interview has been in the 13 years you've been doing this. Oh, gosh. Okay, so my first, which was just thrilling, was Dolores Hart, the actress that became Mm -hmm. a nun, the one who kissed Elvis. That was amazing. She happened to be at a Catholic convention locally, and I was just, but I got it. I mean, there have been, there have been a lot of good ones, Um, but George Shakiris, I can't even talk, George Shakiris, I was like freaking out. Uh, I kept my cool when I was talking to him, but, um, and then I've done some red carpet work at the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival was very excited to talk to Maxwell Caulfield because I'm also a Dynasty Colby's fan. Um, so I was like sweating as he <laughs> approached. And then Claude Jarman Jr., I talked to him on the red carpet. He was in the yearling. I don't know what it was. I've, I mean, I can't say like I'm his number one fan or anything, but I was just starstruck <laughs> um, by him for some reason. So those are probably my top. That wasn't one person but they were those were ones that i was especially excited about and if folks want to uh find the vlog or they want to follow you on social media how how can they do that um it is comet over hollywood c-o-m-e-t over hollywood people think i'm saying comment um and then i'm hollywood comet pretty much everywhere all the all the platforms and we'll have all those uh, links in the show notes for folks as well yes. jessica thank you so much for joining us this was uh, really great yeah this was great Oh, thank you. And everybody else, stick around, because we'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration, on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. All right, boys. Time for our registry picks. Reminder to our listeners, it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. So for this one, I had one that's uh, I've kind of been waiting to play for a while now. And um, it's a movie I'm genuinely surprised is not in the registry. Uh, it is a movie about, when you know the filmmaker, it's obvious, about uh, relationships. Uh, and it's a, it's a tragic one in this regard about two people that fall in love. They shouldn't be falling in love, and but they do. Uh, but then consequences keep them apart and there's this very sad ending where it's after like 10 20 years whatever the fuck the math is where they finally see each other again and it's on one of their deathbeds basically and it's just just so sad of just you wish it could have worked out for these two but you know you know like two ships sailing in in the dark they just passed each other by and just the time didn't work out but maybe in the end it worked out for the best for everybody it's a great movie it's since watching this guy's work, he's become one of my favorites whose visual style has kind of really started influencing the way I write uh, screenplays and all that and the way I think about movies. Um, it's Douglas Sirk's Magnificent Obsession. I think that's a just an amazing movie. It's in the Criterion Collection. 
it's easy to find so you guys can definitely watch it and just find yourself just a great great american melodrama weepy just great technicolor filmmaking and uh i think it would it's not an exact one-to-one to this movie but i think there's enough of a connection that you guys could definitely uh do a double feature to kind of get the sort of broad spectrum of tragic uh relationships not working out in the end is that how is that not in the red okay all right uh, you're right it's not but i double checked i every no, time you're right i, I just play checked it, too every time i wanted to play it and then i pick something else i always go to the wikipedia to be like i must be misremembering but all that heaven allows is in which is the better movie yeah, to be fair but i'm like how the fuck is magnificent Obs-? so but yeah magnificent obsession boys Guys, at the, you know, everyone at the National Film Registry, get off your asses. We need more Cirque in there. Come on, let's go. So uh, my film is another one that I, I am surprised is not in, even though it's not as, as popular. It's notable. It's another William Wyler film. And these two are linked in my mind, Dodsworth, in this because uh, not just because William Wyler is the director, but because weirdly, the covers of the Blu-rays are very similar. The cover of the Dodsworth Blu-ray is this you know very blue uh, painting of the, at the outline of his face. and the only thing of is a purple cover with the outline of its star's faces. Um, it's a, a well-known film in some circles and maybe a bit of an infamous film because of uh, its treatment of one of its characters. But it's, it's, it, the first time I saw it, I was just blown away, um, which is uh, William Wyler's 1961 film, The Children's Hour. Wyler had already adapted the play once before. Uh, it was a play in 1934 by Lillian Hellman. Wyler adapted it once before, but had to really, really sanitize it to take out any mentions of the central conflict, which is Lillian Hellman's play, The Children's Hour, is about two teachers at a private boarding school for girls, and one of the girls, one of the students, to just be uh, vindictive, starts a rumor that the two teachers are in a lesbian relationship, which for 1934 is wild. Even in 1961, it's wild um, to see. And it's about how this town starts to turn on the teachers because the town believes that they're lesbians and that they're uh that they're uh negatively influencing their children that they're quote unquote homosexual groomers to use the parlance that we're somehow using in 2022 it stars Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine who are incredible in this movie and James Garner and the tension between them especially when uh, there is this moment where the two of them, particularly McLean's character, is in love with Hepburn and, and does have those feelings and is gay and, and and does think they have a future together. And the town is just uh, just going, is just destroying these people's lives. It's, it is a landmark film in uh, queer cinema history. Um, you know, it comes up in the celluloid closet. It it comes up a lot when you're talking about the history of, of, of homosexuality. I feel now, obviously, it does suffer from the quote-unquote, you know, kill your gays uh, issue in the end. Spoilers, but but even regardless, it's just, it is such a remarkable thing to see. I, I think it's a well-done film. It's done with a lot of care and a lot of compassion, and it's one of William Wyler's best and an important step in uh, representation on film. So uh, the Children's Hour should absolutely be in the National Film Registry. Thank you again to Jessica Pickens for joining us. Next week, we speak with Dr. Robert J. Snyder, who wrote the National Film Registry's induction essay for the 1938 documentary, The River. 
Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.